Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And as we open it, Lord, to 1 Samuel chapter 30, uh, the first nine verses, we ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to fill us and to show us, minister to us what you want us to take from it and, and live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Have any of you felt like you were in serious, serious trouble? Such serious trouble that you thought it, it just couldn't get any worse, only to find out that it actually could? And so now what? And that, that's how it was like for David in our text this morning. David is faced with yet another challenging situation, and he's faced with such serious trouble that you wonder if this time he's just going to lose it, if this time this, this is the last straw. And sometimes we may go through this in our life's trouble where, where we're in this really deep hole, and as we try to climb our way out of that really deep hole, we, we start sensing that the sides of it are really slippery, and, and, and it's slimy, and there's just no way to kind of climb out of it. And you, and you don't think that it can get any worse than, or any deeper than this hole, only to kind of feel that the bottom from under you is you're sinking, and, it, and it's coming from under you. Now what? You thought you couldn't get any worse, and, and it's just getting worse. And I think our text this morning addresses this because the message of 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 9, is that a believer can strengthen him or herself knowing that God is God when the bottom is coming out from under you. That just when we think that we can't take anymore, that we just can't take, that last straw is already already on us, we find out that we can because the Lord is our strength. And as we look through this passage, keep that in light of your present difficult circumstances or those that you're going to face in the future. Now something about the author is that the author clues us in on what's happening before the people in the story even know what's happening. Kind of like in the book of Job. And so let's, let's just start by reading verse 1 here. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, and the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. And taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. So you see how the writer clues us in onto what's happening before even David knew, because right now David is marching from Aphek, 60 miles uh, south to Ziklag, and so he doesn't even know yet. And, and one might ask, why, why did the Amalekites raid, raid Ziklag? I thought that things were, were cool between David and, and these group of people. Uh, don't know for sure. Maybe, maybe David was found out. Maybe uh, someone saw it and reported it. We, we really don't know. Verse 3. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people were with him, raised their voices, and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. We'll stop there. Um, and while we're slowly let into what's happening here, David is slapped. He's slapped with this reality without any cushion to his blow here. Do you realize the magnitude of this situation? Do you realize the shock as he's marching those 60 miles? And you look at verses 3 and 4, and when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. 
And so can you imagine as they're walking up and they see the, the smoke that they're not just leisurely taking this three-day trek anymore. There's, there's this panic, there's this shock, and maybe some of those fathers and brothers and uncles started running towards this place. And some may want David to look on the brighter side, since in verse 2 we're told that no one was put to death. Sure, the city is burned. No one died. No one died. And, and, and why weren't they killed, though? Why were they all kept alive? Because live people are worth more than dead people. Unless you're an artist. But other than that, most of the time, live people are, are, are worth more than dead. And, and so they could sell these newfound prisoners, right? That The Amalekites could sell off the women. They could sell off the children to, to traders and merchants that were coming through um, from all these foreign lands. And, and then they can resell them again into slavery. And so... They could be sold to these other tribes or, or other, other folks without any trace and lost from their families forever and the rest of their life living in misery as a slave without any chance to be met with their loved ones ever again. So maybe death would have been better for them. And they weren't killed. But what was in store for them was this lifetime of slavery. So we see what David was faced with was, was not only for him personally, for his, for his own family, but, but the 600 men's wrath was also upon him. You look at verse 4 again. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. He has the burden of not only his own family, but all these 600 men and their families as well. And these men are so grieved, they're totally exhausted. Uh, from, from, from their grief that they have no more strength to grieve any further. Then these understandably bitter guys, they, they look for a scapegoat. They look for someone to blame. And so it's David's fault. The people want, they want to stone him. They want to kill him. Now we have to be careful not to cast blame in times when, when we're overwhelmed like David's men did, right? Not to make this emotional reaction and response now let's take a look at this in context and, and find out what we are to do with this passage. Well, this is a, a pretty serious problem we have here in chapter 30. And we witnessed in the past several weeks that, that what God had done for David in chapters 27 through 29. You recall that David in his desperation, he went over to the Philistines and became a trusted man for King Achish of Gath. And he and his 600 men as a mercenary army joined the Philistines and that was a way he could find refuge from King Saul for himself, for his family, for his 600 men and their families. But things kind of went too well for David. His plans kind of went too well. So well that David was given this town called Ziklag, which is in the southwestern part of Canaan, uh, southwest of Hebron, the southern part of Judah. And it's on the border of Philistia and Israel, but within the control of Philistia at this time in history. And while serving Achish, David earned Achish's trust, and he, he got invited by Achish to, to fight against his own people, to fight against his own nation, Israel. Now what? What was David going to do? He was in a very difficult position, as we found out last week. And David went along with the plan. He marched to Aphek, where the other military leaders of Philistia noticed that, hey man, that's David and his men. They've killed tens of thousands of us. What is he doing here? Like, what's going on here, Achish? 
Okay? And there's no way that guy is going to march into battle with us. He, he might kill us on the battlefield. He might make our heads roll on the battlefield just to gain some favor from Saul. Get him out of here. We don't want him here. And so Achish reasoned with David to go back. And David made this political move by making it look like he was disappointed. But he was, but he was no doubt relieved, right? He was no doubt relieved that he didn't have to deal with this very difficult circumstance. That he was once again delivered by God. And the next morning he and his 600 guys wake up. They head back to Ziklag. And you can imagine those conversations that they had heading back home. Like, oh man, you see how God, he, he, he got us out of that jam can't wait to share this with my wife. I can't wait to share this with my kids, this news. This is so awesome. And so they don't have to kill their own people anymore, which is not cool. <laughs> right? And so and this wasn't a, a quick trip back to Ziklag, as I mentioned before. It's 60 miles, right? So it's a three-day journey. And, but what a, what a relief that long journey was for them, to, for them to kind of celebrate their deliverance. And how the guys were looking forward to just kind of sharing with their people God's deliverance. Then they arrive at Ziklag in verse 3. And that is when shock hit. When this journey of relief was happening and then to be faced with this disaster. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Didn't God in His graciousness and His mercifulness use the Philistines to deliver David at very difficult situations and times? You know, when, when Saul was right in the grasp of grabbing David, he used the Philistines to rescue him. In this situation here where he had to make a decision, do I fight against my people? Do I join them? What do I do? God used the Philistine uh, nobles or leaders, military leaders, to deliver him. And after such a close call, or calls, to have a three days uh, journey to think about God's grace, to think about God's mercy, only to be slapped with this problem, which seems like a little more bad. Your family's taken away, your wife, your kids... What an emotional roller coaster this guy's going through. Right? Moving from this place of deliverance, heading home to share with your loved ones, only to come home to a burning house with no one in sight. And sometimes the context in which our troubles come makes it so much worse. All the joy you once had, gone, out the door. When my youngest daughter, Genevieve, was born uh, two months ago, I was so excited, even though it was my third girl. And my wife was doing so well, and she was almost fully delivered, and I was so excited. I was thinking, any second now, any second now, I'm going to be able to hold her. Until I heard the midwife say, get the crash cart, code blue, to to the nurse behind her, and I... I worked for an EMT for, for quite a while, for an ambulance company and an emergency department at various hospitals during college. I know very well what code blue means. And, and I knew what a crash cart was for. And so my heart just sunk. I've never felt that anxiety or that kind of uh, hopelessness ever in my life. 
and, and I felt the blood just rush out of my face. I literally felt my face turn white. I felt my tear ducts fill up. And, and I felt my heart just kind of fall out of my chest. And, and I felt like the world just crashed out of me in, in that one second. And I tried not to react so that, so that uh, Katie wouldn't, wouldn't see that and, and she would still feel supported by me. And all I could do at that moment, that one second of hopelessness, all I could do after that one second was, was cry out to God. That's all I could do. And I just said, God, no, please God, save her. And that's all I could do. And I just could cry out to God. And after I had some time just to, to, to kind of deal with it with the Lord, I, and, and that, that time, which was probably less than 10 seconds, it felt so long to me. But the midwife then waved off the nurse and told her to cancel. Man, I was so relieved. I, I was so relieved. Now, what if my daughter came out fine on the day of her birth, but then three days later, after we took a trek home, she did code? So you sense this emotional roller coaster that, that David and his guys went through, that they were going through some difficult thing, the Lord delivered, but then they were pummeled again with something else. They were just delivered by God from this really serious situation, looking forward to sharing with their families the goodness of God to come back home to disaster. And this just wasn't a one-time occurrence that happened to David. This roller coaster had been going on for quite a while, right? You start back in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Until now, it's, it's all this crazy ride for David. And David has been in this continual distress, this continual pressure, running for his life, narrowly escaping Saul's grip. And David was this desperate man and his life was in danger for months, not knowing which direction he was going to go because he was hunted. And now this, on top of all the other things that he's already gone through, are the problems ever going to stop? Are, are the troubles, are those distressing times, are they ever going to stop? Is the suffering ever going to end? And David had protected the people for so long. He, he had he'd found provision for them for so long. And, and this is how it kind of seemingly ends. And so you get a sense of what it's like for David. How overwhelmed God's servant was, and for some of us, how overwhelmed we are in our present situations. How we felt we have overcome so much, that we've come through so much, and, 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 and we're enjoying things, and, and just to be confronted with yet another distressing situation. But life can be like that for, sometimes for, for His people, for His servants. That we're not exempt from a life like David's, where we can experience trouble over and over and over again to the point that, that we're overwhelmed. Where our problems can actually get worse. Where they can actually intensify. And some of us can testify to this form from our own life. Or know of someone whom we, we know of that's lived such a life where we, where we just see them have things come upon them wave after wave, this distress, wave after wave. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 30, there's a summary statement there where it summarizes David's reign over Israel. Where, where Samuel, Nathan, and Gad, 
they, they write their accounts of David and it reads, With accounts of all his rule and his might and of the circumstances that came upon him and upon Israel and upon all the kingdoms of the countries. The circumstances. They're, they're not talking about all the good stuff. This, this is literally, literally translated the time, right? That came upon him. All those difficult times that came upon him. The circumstances, the times of his life where one wave after another were just pummeling him. The circumstances that came upon him that were just unrelenting. God's servant was utterly overwhelmed. And this can be for a lot of the disciples of Jesus like us. This can happen to us just when we think, this is it. I, I can't take anymore. This is it. We notice that there's yet another last straw. And, and God's servants can be overwhelmed. Now, if our distress isn't as severe like David's, you don't have to feel bad about it. right? You Praise God. Praise God that you don't have to go through that. Thank God. You don't have to, you don't have to feel guilty that you don't have a life of distress. You're good. And you give Him thanks. And if our distress is severe, like David's, don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised by it. And praise God. God's servants can be overwhelmed by their circumstances. And if you currently are, you are in very good company. You're in very good company with David. And in your overwhelmed state, that, that it feels like the bottom is coming out from under you, know that God's strength is sufficient for you. It doesn't mean that you will enjoy the state that you are in. It doesn't mean that you are, you'll stop crying. It doesn't mean that the anxiety is just going to sloth away and, and you still just don't know what you're going to do. But it does mean that you can run to the Lord who is your strength. Now let's continue on in verse 6 here, the, the latter part of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after the band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. David was in that deep hole. But you notice that the turning point was at the bottom of the hole. The turning point was when that bottom was coming out from under him, when things just couldn't get any worse, when that last straw was coming to break the camel's back. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And this is a very significant piece of Scripture. This is the key verse of this passage. When the bottom is coming out from underneath David is when the strengthening occurred. Now what does it mean to strengthen yourself in the Lord your God? What does that entail? How do you do it? So let's start out by pointing out what it isn't. Strengthening yourself in the Lord your God isn't venting. It's not expressing yourself, reacting. It's not uh, crying out, moaning of anguish or, or distress or something. And I'm not saying that that stuff is wrong, uh, nor do I find it in the Scriptures that it forbids us to do that. I think we are. We're even allowed to ask God why. And we don't have to worry about God striking us down with a bolt of lightning or anything. 
But you understand that our venting and, and our cries and our tears and our expressions of anguish are getting things off of our chest. That that in itself is not strengthening yourself in the Lord. And David's men vented in verse 4, right? Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. But you notice that the Scriptures didn't tell us that they strengthened themselves in the Lord their God. David did. So it's not venting, even though our emotional cries are, are often needed. Sometimes it's healthy. Sometimes it's therapeutic. It's often good. I'm just saying that it's not strengthening yourself in the Lord your God. Another thing strengthening yourself in the Lord your God is not, is it's not magic. When you're being overwhelmed, it doesn't mean you seek help in a religion and, and, and then God just is like a genie and, he, and you ask Him to change everything and, and He does. Right? He's not a genie who, who grants you these three wishes. The, the strengthening of yourself, your God, in the Lord, it, it's not a technique. It's not a magic trick. It's not some formula that just happens. So what is strengthening yourself in the Lord, your God? First, I think we have to take a look at where it begins. It begins with a personal God. And you look back at that latter part of verse 6 again. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. See, that there was a danger in Israel, just as there is in, in the churches today, that we just follow the faith that was laid before us. Where we don't make it our own faith. And Israel was in this boat where, where this was just the faith of Israel. This was the official faith of Israel. So all the Israelites had this formal faith, which often overtakes the personal faith. We deal with this in our churches where, where kids are just taking on their parents' faith out of formality and that their faith is lost when they're out of their parents' guardianship because it never became their personal faith. And it happens in parts of the world where being a Christian is more cultural than it is personal. And there's a danger that all people just, that, that just believe uh, what the church believes. That the people just kind of take on the church's beliefs and they never make it their own. And, and you know, the, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that the church's beliefs are wrong. They can very well be right. But the problem is, is that it hasn't become that person's personal belief. And some of us haven't owned the formal belief as our personal belief. We haven't owned what is the church's belief as our personal belief. And you notice that that isn't the case for David. He doesn't say Israel's God. It's personal. His God. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. It doesn't reference a higher power, the man upstairs. It says his God. It's the God of Exodus 3, who is the God who is present with his people to help them, to deliver them according to their needs. It's that God who is Israel's God, but it is David's personal God. My God. God is a personal God, and that's where it begins. And there's a time where we, where we take in what the church tells us what to believe, what others tell us what to believe as they're discipling us or, or sharing things with us, and what the Scriptures tell us to believe as we read it. But it's vital that we believe it for ourselves. Not because someone else told it to us, but because it is what we believe. And there's a time when you need to say to yourself, the Lord is my shepherd. 
not from what someone else told you, from, that you can identify that as yourself. Psalm chapter 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. It's one thing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. But there comes a time when you need to say it for yourself. Jesus is the Son of God for me. Just like Paul did in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That it needs to be personalized. Can you say it like that to where it's personalized to you? Or is this just an acknowledgement and a relationship at arm's length? That it's not really personal, but you acknowledge that that's true, but it's not personal for you. It needs to start by being personal with you. The personal relationship is where the strengthening of the Lord begins. It's a personal relationship. Without it, you can't strengthen yourself in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, it's written, My grace is sufficient for you. For you. Do you believe that it's for you? That it's personally for you? Or do you think it's for someone else that God's grace is sufficient for you, someone out there, but not necessarily me? Have you taken God's grace personally? Or is this just a grace of formality? Or a grace that was prescribed by the church that it's for somewhere else, but not for you? And it begins with you. If it doesn't start with you, it won't go further from you. And as David made his way back to Ziklag, he, he could no longer say, My city. Because it was burning. He could no longer say, my house. He couldn't no longer say, my property or my possessions. It was all burning. Those things were taken from him. But David could still say, my God. You can't take that away. That's where it begins. Strengthening yourself in the Lord your God starts with a personal relationship with God. But where does it go from there? What does that entail? Well, it entails remembering the affirmations and the promises of God's Word. You look back in, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, in, in verse 16, David was hiding from Saul. Jonathan shows up, you know, Saul's son, David's friend. Uh, he, he rose up and went to David at Horish, and what does it say there? He strengthened his hand in the Lord. Now, how did Jonathan do that? How did Jonathan strengthen his hand in the Lord? How did he do that? What did he do? And you look at the next verse. Chapter 23, verse 17 of 1 Samuel. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. Jonathan reminded David of the promise God had made to David. You shall be king over Israel. Jonathan was reminding David of the assurance of God's promise, that the promise will come about. You are going to be king. So how do we strengthen ourselves? How do we strengthen others? Well, we remind ourselves, we remind others of God's promises and what God has uh, affirmed to us. We strengthen ourselves in God's promises that apply to us, the promises that are applicable to us. Right? We're, we're not told that we're going to be a king like David. It doesn't apply to us. But we have other promises that God has made to us. 
that do apply to us, that do pertain to us. And in times of being overwhelmed with, our, with, with things, with, with our circumstances, you strengthen yourself by reminding yourself of the promises of God. It starts with a personal relationship with God. So if you don't have that, that's where you have to start. But if you do have that personal relationship with God, then Romans chapter 8, verse 28, does apply to you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purposes. That promise is for you if you have a personal relationship with God. The promise doesn't necessarily mean that all your weeping is taken away, all the pain is taken away, all the anxiety, all the distress, but it does strengthen you to know that God's promise is for you. That all things work together for good. And that's where we go. We, we go to the promises of God that pertain to us, that, that apply to us. Another way we strengthen ourselves in the Lord, our God, is by looking at the history of God's providences. By God's providences, I mean God wonderfully, yet often very strange, in very strange ways, but yet entertaining ways, uh, he, he preserves our life. He, he watches over our life. And we're, we're not... 100% that David was thinking about this here, but, but one way that David could strengthen himself in the Lord was by reflecting upon his life. Looking back at how God had preserved him all this time. And instead of saying, man, again? When is this going to stop? Wave after wave. You know, he back to 1 Samuel chapter 18, move forward where we are today. You can take a, the inventory of how many times, how many episodes of deliverance God had to kind of perform on David here. And he could have taken it in such a way that it's like, man, again. Or he could look at it in such a way as, he delivered me out of all those things, I'll be delivered again. So here, I think we're at 14 episodes of deliverance since chapter 18. So needless to say, there's a record of David's deliverances here for us in 1 Samuel chapter 18 through 30. And if David looked back, he would reason that if God had a trial that would do him in, that would just kind of kill him, why then is he still standing in chapter 30? Why has he survived? Why has he been preserved over a dozen times before just to lead him to this. If God was going to bury David at this point, why would he bother preserving David over a dozen times before? If God was going to crush you now, why would he wait till now when he delivered you from all the other things in your past? If you're really meant to be plowed under by what you're going through now, why didn't God just allow you to be buried before in your previous challenging circumstances? And that's the type of argument Manoah's wife used in Judges chapter 13, verse 23. See, this angel of the Lord announced that Manoah's wife was going to have a child, and, and they realized it, that it was this visible manifestation of God who was communicating this to them. And when Manoah realized that, he said in verse 22, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife, who had better theology, who had better sense than her husband, said in Judges chapter 13, verse 23, If the Lord had meant to kill us, 
He would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. So this was an appeal to God's providences. Right? God is not going to do that in the future because, because look at everything He has already done in your past. He's not going to do you in now. Just look. Look at how He delivered you until now. And sometimes our projected future of how God will deal with us doesn't make sense based off of what He's already done to preserve us in the past. The past proves something different than what we're going through now. So we need to look back at God's ways that He's preserved us over and over and over again. And sometimes that's more drama than we care for it to be. But it's preservation. It's God's protection. And so when we find ourselves at the bottom of a hole, you don't forget about what God has already done for you so far. You strengthen yourself in the Lord your God by remembering God's providences in your life and how He's already preserved you up until this point. One last thing I'd like to bring up in strengthening yourself in the Lord your God is using the access to God's presence. And you take a look at verses 6-8. through eight. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, and David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after the band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Now the ephod was a high priestly garment, which we've talked about before, and if you're not familiar with it, you can read about it in Exodus chapter 28. And this garment of the high priest was brought out by Abiathar when he escaped from Saul to David, when Saul wiped out all the priests. Well, this ephod had a couple stones on it, the Urim and the Thummim, and the high priest knew how to use these stones to inquire answers from the Lord. So here we have David coming to God. He had access to God through Abiathar, the appointed priest. And through this access to God, through Abiathar, he was able to get guidance that he needed during this trial. And that's an indication of what is necessary to strengthen yourself in the Lord, your God. That we use the access we have to God through our appointed high priest. Who is that? Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a great high priest in Jesus. And we come through Him to the throne of grace. We have access to the throne of grace through Jesus. And at the throne of grace, we receive deliverance at the right time. We receive help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. That's something that David had, which Saul did not have. That's what Saul lamented about in chapter 28, verse 15. God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Saul was cut off from God. He received no direction from God and did not have God's presence with him. But David, he did have access. 
David had access to God even with the city burning. Even with his family and, and his men's families taken captive, David still had access to God's guidance through his appointed high priest. And some of us may want specific answers from God like David received. And some of us may receive those specific answers. And others of us won't. And for those of us who do not receive specific answers in our difficult times, is it really all that important to receive specific answers? Are specific answers what we really need? Or is what we need simply just God keeping us on our feet? God just holding us up. Is the answer grace? Is the answer a type of mercy? Sometimes it is. Sometimes that word is. But other times it's simply what we need in time of need. And sometimes that's just the endurance and getting through just another day and getting through our trial. And that's all it is, that, that He just holds us up. And through Jesus, we have that. We have access through our high priest to the throne of grace in our time of need. So how do we strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God? We hold on to God's promises. We remember God's providences. And we enter God's presence through the access we have in Jesus, our high priest. When the bottom is coming out from under you, when you're just overwhelmed, you strengthen yourself in the Lord, your God. And I want to close by reading Psalm chapter 139, verses 7 through 18 together. And it's on page 521. Just open that Bible right in front of you, split it in half, and go a couple to the right. Psalms chapter 139, starting in verse 7. We're going to go to verse 18. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake... And I am still with you. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would grant us the grace and the belief to trust that this psalm be ours. That this psalm be so. In Jesus' name, amen.